You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. Back in Romans today, we are flipping into a new chapter, okay? So Romans chapter 10, and uh, we're going to be looking at uh, this chapter really is uh, transitioning from the past of Israel, their past and in, in, in why some of them were not saved, why many of them were not saved. He's, he's pointed us to the Old Testament scriptures again and again. Now he's changing the focus to the present day circumstances. Why is it that more people are, are not coming to faith in Christ? And so he just kind of sets it out by giving us the gospel. Uh, chapter 9, it may have stretched you theologically, depending on your background. Chapter 10, not so much, okay? You, 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 if you're, you're, you're either in Christ, and you're, you're like, yeah, I get this, or you're not in Christ, you're like, I'm still not sure about the way of salvation. That really is the question he's going to be talking about this morning. How can we be saved? Um, there is a indication that the majority of the world understands that there is a problem with them. There is something that needs to be done in order for them to be saved. Interestingly, over 85% of the world follows some kind of religion. Only 15% would say, yeah, I'm atheist, I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic, I, I'm secular. They would define themselves in those terms. 85%, six point, over 6.5 billion people in this world say, I know that there's something I need to do in order for me to have a better life now and hopefully a better life in the future after this life. And so they've come up with different systems as to how to do that, religion, and and. And some people are like super enthusiastic about their religion, right? They're super zealous. Is that enough to save someone? How is it that we are saved? Some, as I said, are are zealous, right? If we're being honest in this room, maybe more zealous than you about your faith in Christ, right? Like they knocked on like a thousand doors this last week trying to tell people about their religion, about their belief system. They can outdo you in regards to zeal, but is zeal enough to save you? That's one of the questions Paul's going to be bringing forward this morning. Is that enough? What if I sacrifice greatly for my religion? I give away of my time, my money, my energy. Is that enough to save me? If I present sacrifices to my God every day, is that enough? If my good works are more than my bad works, does that guarantee that my God will bless me in this life and in the next? What if I put all my trust in the religion that I have? Will that save me? What would you tell someone? It's kind of a scary stat, when in, I think it was like 2014, the stat that I found. 2014, 50% of evangelicals said, yes, you can be saved that way. You, as long as you're zealous about your thing, you can get saved that way. 
It doesn't have to be just through Jesus. There's other ways. You, you know, you can, as long as you're really, really believing in the thing that you have, then you can be saved. And the fact that there's like 50%, I don't know where they did this survey, but there could be a chance that someone here in this room would be like, yeah, I, I think so. Like, it would seem fair. Like, if someone's like really trying, maybe they've got off a little course. They've, you know, they, they don't really know the truth, but they're really zealous. It would seem like good effort, trusting in whatever that thing was would be enough to save them. That's how we can think sometimes. But if you've been coming here any length of time, you, you know that we really don't care what we think. We only care what God's word says. So that's what we want to be studying this morning. Paul's going to tell us quite clearly the way of salvation as we look at verses 1 through 13. But before we get into it, let me pray for us and we'll get into it. God, we do thank you for this time together this morning. God, it is a privilege to gather um, as your church, as your body. God, we desire this morning that your name would be high and lifted up. God, we desire that we would understand what is true and what is false. That, God, we would know you more, that we would love you better as a result of our time together this morning. God, we would quickly admit that we are prone to wander, where we can easily be distracted, we can easily uh, reason away your truth based on what we would think, what we would believe. But God, we, we desire, Lord, to, to bring you glory, to bring you honor. And so God, would you direct our hearts and minds this morning? God, so thankful that, um, Lord, you are three in one and that your spirit indwells those who are your children and your spirit convicts the unbeliever of sin and in the way of salvation. And so, God, we, we look to you to do the work that only you can do this morning. God, would your spirit lead this preacher? Would, may we um, have a proper understanding of your gospel as a result of our study this morning. It's your name we pray. Amen. So Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Everyone have a Bible? If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and slip up your hand. Uh, the, the ushers be happy to give you a copy of God's Word. And if you don't own one, just keep the one they're giving you as a gift from us. But again, I just want to set the trajectory. Uh, 9, 10, 11, okay, of Romans. He's dealing with the fact that, that there's not a whole lot of people of Israel being saved. So what's the problem? And what is with these Gentiles getting saved? Where did that come from? We didn't see that anywhere. And so what Paul has been doing, he's been showing us over and over again, the word of God has not failed. God is faithful. He's, he's told us these things long ago, and he's been going back to the Old Testament over and over and over again. And last week he said, look, in Hosea, the Gentiles, it was to be that they too would be saved. And that the Israelites, those who had rejected him, would be judged. But even then, God would be merciful to a remnant to remain faithful to his covenant. And then he gave us the way of salvation as we ended chapter 9. It is through the rock. It is through Jesus Christ that we might be saved. And so that kind of sets the context for what we are getting into now. And I read from verse 1 of chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, them, the Israelites. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. 
For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteous, righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is one distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The gospel alone saves. The good news that, that proclaims Jesus Christ as Savior, we're going to study this this morning. We're going to see three ways that the gospel brings about salvation. How does the gospel bring about salvation? The first thing we see is that the gospel confronts. The gospel confronts. It confronts our wrong ideas about how we might be saved. A whole lot of people in this world believing that their way is going to save them, and it is not. And these verses show us why. But note, first of all, he says in verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. As he begins this new section of thought, he is reaffirming once again his love for his people. Now, I think this is really important. As we've just come out of chapter 9 in this doctrine of election, I know for some of you it's like, I've never heard this stuff before. This is hard. I, I do see it in there, but I'm still kind of wrestling. If your understanding of the doctrine of election results in you ceasing to pray for the lost, you've missed it. You have not understood the doctrine of election. If you're if you have a less of a heart for the lost, that they might be saved as a result of your doctrine of election, again, you've missed it. Why are you saying that? Well, look at Paul. He had a pretty good understanding of the doctrine of election, did he not? And yet, what is he saying? I'm praying for my people that they might be saved. He, he didn't see attention in those two things, that God chose you before the foundation of the world, and I'm praying for you that you might be saved. And we need to embrace that tension. And so it's, it's, it's something that we do as people over the last 2,000 years. We see it over and over again. We see two things that in our minds are opposing things. And so we just kind of get rid of the one so that it doesn't seem opposing anymore, right? So if I'm heavy on my election is in what we call hyper-Calvinism, then I would be like, I don't need to pray. He already knows who he's saving. Done. Is that, well, then what have I done with all the verses that tell me to pray? What do I do with all the verses that tell me to go and proclaim the good news? What do I do with all that? So again, as you're, as you're grappling with these doctrines, let's make sure that we're not erasing one for the other. And Paul clearly is not. And so that we see that in verse 1. But what is he confronting? Let's see verse 2. 
First, he's confronting sincerity is not a substitute for substance. Sincerity, zeal, is not a substitute for substance knowledge. He says in verse 2, For I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Paul knew all about this, right? Zealous, very devoted. Again, maybe, maybe like putting you to shame based on what they were doing on a, on a daily basis. And many people in the religions around the world, I, mean, I remember being in Nepal and like the sun's not even up yet in here. Like, ding, 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 ding. like there's bells going. What, they're going to their little, little places of worship and they're waking up their gods. They're, they're sacrificing sleep. They're giving a sacrifice to their gods. I'm like, I, I snooze button, right? I, I need more sleep. But, but they were so devoted. And some of the things that they would do for their gods is much more than many believers would do. And yet, is that zeal enough to save them? Paul knew what it was to be zealous, did he not? Let's just remind ourselves of a couple of texts here. Acts 22, 3 to 5. And again, as I always uh, say, just encourage you to write these things down, look them up for yourself later. But Acts 22, 3 to 5, Paul says this, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, brought, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gam- Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. I was so zealous. I was actually going beyond my own people when it came to my pursuit of God. He says in Galatians 1.14, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own, my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my father's. Greatly devoted, extreme devotion for what he believed was the way. But the problem was, it was not the way. It was not according to knowledge, he says here. I mean, if it was coming down to a Bible trivia contest for the Old Testament, guess what? Paul's winning. He had a knowledge, he had the head knowledge. The Pharisees had the head knowledge. Sadducees, the first five books they had, they had knowledge, right? Like that's all they believed in, the first five books. But, but like they had that knowledge, but it wasn't a saving knowledge. It, they hadn't understood the implications of what the text was saying. They just knew a bunch of facts. They didn't understand what the Bible was telling them about the way of salvation, about Jesus who had to come. Jesus pointed that out to the Pharisees over and over again. The scriptures say about me, but you fail to understand. Knowledge is not enough. Not not head knowledge. They needed to know the way. So I can be extremely zealous, but that's not a substitute for knowing the way. The next thing the gospel confronts is this. Religion is not a substitute for righteousness. Religion is not a substitute for righteousness. Verse 3, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God 
and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Ultimately, what was the thing that they lacked knowledge of? How is it that you and I could be made right with God? It is the problem with everyone who is lost today. They do not know how they can be made right with God. They, they've, they've come up with their own systems. Many, as I said, like, I mean, the, the, the generous number is that a billion of those 6.5 billion are Christians. I'd say that's a very generous number because it kind of just includes anyone who says, yeah, this is the Bible and Jesus is the Savior, but then there's a whole lot of mess up in there as well, right? A lot of, and these good works and, 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 and not Christ alone as we celebrate Reformation Day, right? So, so but billions of people, billions of people thinking that they can be made right with God through their own righteousness, through their own ways. But the Bible makes it clear there is only one way to be made right with God. And so Paul says here, why are my people not being saved? Because they're ignorant of the righteousness of God, the righteousness that only God can bestow. Even in the Old Testament, they should have understood that. It's not as if they were walking around perfect, right? They failed over and over again. The sacrificial system in itself should have showed them it's not enough. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of animals having to be sacrificed. Why? Because of sin. They should have understood that it is only by God's grace that they could be made righteous. God's standard, God's, how do I put it? God's standard, I guess let's just do that. God's standard of righteousness is what? Perfection. Perfection. That's what he expects. Why? Because he is holy. And so part of our problem when we look at verse 3 and this idea of religion saving us is to misunderstand how holy God is. We think that somehow we can kind of, you know, as long as, my, as long as my good works are higher than my bad works, then I'm good to go. How many people think that in this world? Many, many people believe this. I just have to do enough to kind of bury my bad works, and then when I come before whatever my deity is, surely he'll welcome me in. It's funny that we think that about religion, but not about justice, right? What if I'm like a model citizen? You're in, you're out, 20 years of that. I, I, like, I'm winning Citizen of the Year awards, but then I kind of take a left turn one day. I go and rob a bank, I shoot someone, and then I go the next day to before the judge. Anybody think that there would be justice? They're like, you know what? You've been a model citizen for like 20 years. One day. One day you kind of lose your mind. You rob a bank and you kill someone. No big deal. Like anybody think that that, anyone in this world would think that's not a big deal. But when it comes to religion, we think that's how it should work. I've done more good. Then I've done bad, so I should get into heaven. It's not how it works. And the Bible tells us that God's way, his standard is perfection. If you fail there, then you are not right with him. 
And yet people over and over again will do what they can to try to attain righteousness on their own. And until you can get to the point where you understand, I can never achieve righteousness on my own. Salvation is kept from you. And believers, can I just kind of pull it over just for a second with this? Still today, your righteousness is through Christ alone. Like, Sometimes we start doubting our salvation because like, oh, I don't know, I feel like I did more bad this week than good. It is only through Christ alone that you will ever be saved. And if you are, have a pattern of sin in your life, then you for sure should repent of that sin. But understand, Christ alone is the way that we can be saved. Philippians 3.9 says this, And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's him declaring you righteous. That's how it works as you place your faith in him. As Calvin justly commented, the first step to obtaining the righteousness of God is to renounce our own righteousness. If you, must, if you want to be saved, it starts with you understanding you could never be right with God in your own effort. And yet for the Jews, they, this was a stumbling block. No, no, we just, we just keep the law. And God will have us enter into heaven someday. That's all we have to do. We're his people, but they've missed it. What was impossible for us to ever attain God has given us as a gift through Jesus Christ, which leads us to the third thing that the gospel confronts. Trying is not a substitute for trust. Trying is not a substitute for trust. Maybe if I just really try hard, then, then, I'll, then I'll get into heaven. That's not a substitute for trust. Where it says in verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Salvation does not come about by our own efforts, but through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. He says here that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. So what does that mean? The word is telos in, in the Greek. What does that mean? Is it, is it mean like the end of the law or the fulfillment of the law? And there is a sense where it's both and, and so scholars, good scholars, are going to go back and forth on this. Christ ultimately was the fulfillment of the law, right? He came, he lived, he did everything perfectly. He was the only one who has ever done it, that, that looked at the law and said, yeah, done. Completed it all, fulfilled it all. But there's also the end of the law through Christ, and I think that's more the implication here. The end of the law. As we've learned in the study of Romans, it does not mean that we're free to do whatever we want, okay? Like, if you're here this morning for the first time, that's not like, oh, we can just do whatever we want now. Well, no, we're, we're saved to salvation. We're saved to righteousness through Christ. But the end of the law, the end of the law being seen as a way to salvation, Christ is now the way. Schreiner puts it like this, Christ is the end of using the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. He responds to this specific error of the Jews articulated in verse 3. They use the law to establish their own righteousness. He observes that those who trust in Christ cease 
using the law to establish their own righteousness. They cease from that. They, they understand that it is that, that there's an end to that, and now salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. Morris puts it like this. Once we grasp the decisive nature of Christ's saving work, we see the irrelevance of all legalism. Uh, okay, right? So legalism does not save you. Why did they have to use such hard words, right? Legalism doesn't save you. Christ alone saves you. You, 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 I mean, this was the whole Pharisee system. We got the law, but now we added a whole bunch more stuff. And if you just do all these things, look, you can be as great as us. And they were wicked in their hearts. They had this outward outward look that everyone thought they were great, but they were not great. And Christ, who sees their hearts, called them out on that. Legalism cannot save us. It's not about a bunch of do's and don'ts. And again, I say this to all of us in this room. We need to hear that. We need to remember that. That it is through Christ alone that we might be saved. So the gospel confronts what? It, it confronts all these false religions. Sincerity is not a substitute for substance. Religion is not a substitute for righteousness. And trying is not a substitute for trust. Now, salvation is through faith alone. As we look at next, the gospel corrects. The gospel corrects. We see in verse 5 that it sets the standard. The gospel sets the standard. What is it that we must do in order that we might be saved? Well, what, what is the, the standard of righteousness that we must attain to? Paul, again, turns back to the Old Testament. He quotes from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. He says here, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And we've talked a whole lot about this. Paul has talked a whole lot about this in, in the book of Romans earlier, so we're not going to take a whole lot of time on this point. But the point is this. If you want to be saved, you have to do the law perfectly. You, 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 if you mess up once, then you cannot be saved through your own righteousness. And again, it should have been evident to them over and over again. Anyone who, who God called to be his own, there's a, look at the list. Abraham, really good guy, right? Never sinned. She's my sister. My wife, you know, like, you know not, not my wife, she's my sister. I mean, there, there's, I mean, the Bible makes it really clear. As you go through the heroes of the faith, which they are heroes to us, right? David, how, uh, you know, did he have a good live a life of perfection? Idolatry, murder, yet a man after God's own heart. Like grace, grace, grace. It's always been about grace. But the standard, if you want to do it on your own, is perfection. And that's what he's been showing over and over again. And then Romans chapter 3 says, but what? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the standard is perfection. So if I'm going to be perfect, how does that happen? How am I going to have perfection? How am I going to have the righteousness that God would require for me to be able to enter into his presence? How does that happen? Well, the gospel not only sets the standard, it shows the solution. We see this in verse 6 to 8. But the righteousness based on faith says. Note that he is 
contrasting. But the standard fulfilled the law 100%. But the righteousness based on faith says what? We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 30. He's quoting again Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 14. He's comparing Moses' writing with Moses' writing right, to help them to see, look, it's always been here. The way of salvation. Salvation has been brought near to us. It says in verse, as he continues in verse 6, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring down Christ, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now you'll notice that there's brackets there. That's Paul's addition to what it said in Deuteronomy chapter 30. But this, this message of who will ascend into heaven, or who will descend into the abyss, Moses, when he writes these things, he's like, look, the law is before you. You don't have to, he adds there, you don't have to travel across the sea. You don't have to go up into heaven. You don't need to go down to the abyss in order to see that God has revealed himself to you. It's right there. And so now Paul is saying, and so too it has been now through Christ. He has revealed himself to you through Christ. You do not need to, in your own efforts, go up to heaven. Why? Because Christ descended to earth. He came in the form of flesh and, 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 and walked as a servant and lived the perfect life for you and I, the perfect righteousness that we needed, and then died upon a cross, taking my sin, taking your sin upon himself, and the wrath of God being poured out on him so that we would not have to pay the price. He paid it for us. He descended from heaven. Philippians chapter 2 reminds us of that great sacrifice that he made. And then it says, nor do you need to go down into the abyss. Christ rose from the dead on the third day. And he sits now at the right hand of the Father. Salvation is near is the message here. You do not have to go searching it out. Our Lord Jesus Christ has done it all. This is an incredible picture. I mean, I gotta work hard. I gotta, I gotta do all this stuff in order to get right with God. And he's like, nope, you don't. You don't. Christ has done it all. Verse eight, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. The gospel is brought up near through the proclamation of believers. The salvation that comes by Faith, faith alone, to walk in a perfect obedience to the law was impossible for you and I due to our sin. But Jesus has made salvation possible. And listen, it is readily accessible. Readily accessible at any moment, at any time. It's there. A personal response is needed. Your mom and dad can't do it for you. A friend can't do it for you. You need to come to him in faith. You and you alone. No one other than the Lord can change your heart and open your eyes to that which is true. But that's what is needed for you and I to come to him in salvation. As believers, we proclaim the message, but we fully understand that it is God who is doing the saving. Right? As we go out and we proclaim the message of faith, 
that if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you'd be saved. We're trusting him to change those wicked hearts, right? Just like your wicked heart needed changing. To open your eyes to that salvation. Everything that is necessary for our salvation has been brought through Christ. Moose says this, in Christ, the culmination of the law, God's word is near in a way that it has never been before. And all that is now required of human beings is the response of faith. For the gospel is the word of faith, a message that calls for faith. Your righteousness will never be enough. Self-righteousness will fail every time. But the good news is, is that Christ's righteousness has been purchased. His, his righteousness is, 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 is credited to your account through your faith in him. This is the message. This is how we can be saved. The gospel confronts, it corrects, and lastly, it converts it converts. So, so then what is the result? As the, the gospel is laid out in front of us, as he's, he's shown us, it's, it's there for anyone who would want to receive it. So what does that process look like? First, we see a substance with sincerity. Substance with sincerity. There, there is the truth that they were missing in verse 2, that, that how to be made right with God. Now you understand that, and you must be devoted to that truth, substance with sincerity. He says in verse 9, as he continues to explain why the gospel is so near, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That seems pretty simple. It's too simple. That's what some people think. It's not a... Is like, so you tell me I just have to I have faith? Like, I don't have to like climb Mount Kilimanjaro or something, or, or I have to give away all my money, or I have to, I, like, like, there's got to be more. I, ha- I have to be a part of this process. There's got to be more. Well, there's laying down your life and recognizing you can't do it, but that He has. This is the gospel. A person comes to the Lord in faith. And as they come to him in faith, it is manifested through confession and belief. A person confesses his or her belief that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. Jesus is not just a man. Jesus was not just a prophet. Jesus was not a God. Jesus is God. And if you confess that and you place your faith in him, you will be saved. Think about all the religions of the world. They all have Jesus, most of them have Jesus in their formula. The major religions of the world, they have Jesus in there, but they do not see him for who he really is. And if you do not proclaim today that Jesus is God, that he is Lord of all, that he is our master, then you've missed it. There is no salvation apart from that testimony, from that belief. 
And that, and, 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 and that word Lord, if you look back in your Old Testament, used of, used of Yahweh over and over and over again, he is confessing, he's telling the Jews, look, he is Yahweh. He is God. When he came and he said, I am he, he was he. You must put your trust in him. Yet many, many Jews today still cannot believe that. And many, many Gentiles do not believe that today. So you must believe that he is Lord. But then secondly, that what? He rose him from the dead. If there is no resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, then there is no hope. If there is no resurrection, then forget it. What are you doing here? What's the point? But there is a resurrection. And we believe that in faith today, that Christ rose from the dead after paying the price for our sins on the cross. He rose again, showing the world that he has the victory over sin, Satan, and death. This is our hope this morning. This is the gospel. Have you confessed? Do you believe in your heart these things? It's not just lip service, right? Like, I don't know if you've been in church. Like, just, just say this prayer. Just say it. Just say it. Well, if there's no heart behind it, if you do not truly, if there's no faith there, then save your breath. Those words won't save you. But if you believe in your heart and you understand these things, and you confess these things, then you will be saved. Stott says this, confession without faith would be vain. But likewise, faith without confession would be shown to be, to be spurious. The assurance that if we confess and believe these things, you will be saved. Future tense, you will be saved. On the day of judgment, when every person will come before him. If this is your faith, if this is your belief, you will be saved from the judgment that you are owed for your sins that now have been placed upon Christ. Instead of you, you will be saved. He continues on, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is the order of salvation that we would have expected. He, he kind of just, he continued to do the commentary on what he had just said from Deuteronomy 30, and, and he said, so, you know, first he talks about the confession, then the belief. Well, ultimately we know that without the belief there is no confession. But it is with the heart one believes and is justified. There's this supernatural work that happens within the heart. You finally understand, you finally, you finally see that you could never attain salvation on your own, but that Christ has done it on your behalf. You understand that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and you believe in salvation through Him, and as such, God credits righteousness to you. That's what it means to be justified. Just as if you've never sinned. Christ's righteousness, his perfect righteousness given to you. It's an incredible thing. At the moment that your heart believes, as you place your faith in him, at that moment we forsake any hopes of attaining a self-righteousness and fully embrace Christ alone for salvation. It is that faith that results in God declaring you righteous. 
And what happens as a result of that radical change in your heart? There's a mouth that confesses these things. You pray to the Lord. You, you call out to him for salvation as a result of your faith. And then not just to him, what? But to the whole world. To the church, you're like, hey, I'm, I'm now one of you. I have believed on Christ for salvation and we have a baptism and you say they're now in Christ. And then that person goes out and proclaims to the world, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. There is no such thing as undercover Christianity. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, really? Billy's a believer? I've never heard that before. I, I, I kind of am, but I don't really tell a lot of people. Like, that's... You don't see that anywhere in the scripture. In fact, Jesus says this in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. True salvation, heart, true heart change will result in your confessing to anyone and everyone who will hear that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Substance with sincerity. Having an understanding of how it is that I am made right with God and then being devoted to him through faith. Stott says it like this, implicit in the good news are the truths that Jesus Christ died, was raised, was exalted, and now reigns as Lord and bestows salvation on those who believe. This is not salvation by slogan, but by faith. That is, by an intelligent faith which lays hold of Christ as the crucified and resurrected Lord and Savior. This is the positive message of righteousness that is by faith. Who's it available to? Who is this gospel available to? We see in uh, the verses 11 and 12, there's an invitation with impartiality. Invitation with impartiality. In other words, it is open to everyone. It says in verse 11, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Who's exempt from that? Just those who will not believe. Just those who will not trust. But everyone... Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You are assured that one day when you see him, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. <laughs> you getting fired up? Like th if this doesn't get you fired up this morning, then you may not be saved. Okay? Like I'm telling you, and when you, when you meditate upon these things, it's like, how can we not be like blown away by these truths over and over and over again? Every morning we should wake up and be like, are you kidding me? Our God has saved us. He sent his son and, and, and did what we could never do. He, through Christ, has given us his righteousness. We, we would have been damned for all of eternity if it were not for him. But it is open to all. He says in verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Israel. Did you catch that? No distinction between Jew and Greek. Why? For the same Lord is Lord of all, 
bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. He is the creator of all of humanity. He is the God over this world, over all of creation. He is Lord and Lord of all. There, there is no like a God of Canada and the God of Nigeria and the God of Bolivia. That's not how it works. He is Lord over all. And so anyone, whether Jew or Greek, who calls upon him will be saved. Right? He's not like, uh, can I see your passport? Oh, sorry. <laughs> no salvation for you. That's not how it works. And not only that, he just says, come as you are. He didn't say, get your life all together and do a lot of good works. And then maybe we can talk about salvation. And he says, no, come with your sin. It's been paid for by Christ. And if you call upon him, this idea of calling, it's like, it's help, help. I need help. When you call upon him, it says he, did you catch that? He bestows his riches. He bestows his riches on all who call upon him. His grace, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness. He gives you a spirit. I mean, just the riches that are ours in him, it's, it's unfathomable. This God who Every knee will bow someday. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord, whether you're a child of his or not. He says, if you call upon me, I will richly bestow my riches upon you. Ephesians 1, 7 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This morning, hear me. You've never, if you've never called upon him, if you have never placed your faith in him, know that today he is saying to you, everyone who puts their hope in me will not be put to shame. If you have never called upon him, know you would never be put to shame. You would call upon him today. He would say, my riches are now yours. Salvation is now yours through my works. As the gospel converts, lastly, we see the righteousness with reassurance. Righteousness with reassurance. He says in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Are you getting it? Are you understanding it? Right? Like he's just said it like three, in three verses in three different ways. But he's, the whole point is it's like salvation is open to everyone who calls on his name. Not just Jews. Not just Gentiles, everyone. It's open to everyone who would call upon him. To call upon the name of the Lord is to appeal to him to save us in accordance with who he is and what he has done. So you think about this verse, and you think about all these world religions, what a contrast. All these world religions, like, hopefully I've done enough. I gotta keep every day, I gotta go back to the grind. I gotta, I gotta work, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, and hopefully someday I'll get to what 
I hope will be my salvation in some way or another. And in Christ, like, no. Salvation is yours. Why? Because it's not based on you. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And no one and nothing can ever change that. And if you've placed your faith in him and you're putting your trust in him, then his righteousness is now your righteousness. Your sin has now been paid for on the cross through Jesus Christ. So, he says with confidence, everyone who calls on him will be saved. Have you placed your trust in him this morning? What a message. What hope. But you have to lay down your pride. You have to lay down any hope of you ever achieving righteousness on your own. And then place your trust in him and follow him and walk in him all the days of your life. On this Reformation Day, what a, what a great reminder of what the Reformation was all about. Salvation is through Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone. Well, this morning we get to celebrate the gospel through communion. As we transition our hearts and minds, I, I, want, us to, I want us to see the significance of what we do in the Lord's Supper. It is a celebration of our faith. It is a celebration of the fact that we are saved through Christ alone. We remember together today. Do this in remembrance of me. We're called to do that over and over again. And I, as we remember the great sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf, may it not just be in here, Head knowledge. May it move our hearts every time we think about the great sacrifice that was made on our behalf so that you and I might be saved. May we rejoice in that salvation. May we, we worship him for that salvation, understanding that it, it cost him. His blood was shed only through the shedding of blood might there be salvation and Christ paid the price for you and I. We remember together. It says elsewhere as we think about the Lord's Supper that we proclaim together that proclamation that he's just talked about that's required for salvation. We proclaim together here this morning that salvation is through Christ alone. We remember that he's coming back. He came as savior, but he's coming as judge. The second time. We await that return. We anticipate that return. We proclaim together that salvation is through Christ alone. And this morning, if you have never placed your trust in him, then you are not to partake in the Lord's Supper. The scripture is makes great warnings about that. It is, this celebration is for those who have only, only for those who have placed their trust in him. And as we partake together in just a moment, we, we proclaim to all the world, this is salvation. This is how we are saved. It is through Christ alone and we have placed our trust in him. And this morning we lastly reflect together. 
we reflect together. Am I making a new gospel that, that, that it's Christ plus my works? If I am doing that, then I must repent of that this morning. I need to examine my heart. Am I, am I walking in faith in him each day? Am I trusting in him each day? Or am I doing my own thing? Am I walking in sin? And as we reflect this morning, you need to say, God, search me, try me, see if there be any sinful way in me. And if there is, then you repent of that before you partake together. And so in just a moment, we're going to partake together. But before we do, let me pray for us one more time. God, we do thank you for salvation. We remember what you said, Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. That no one can come before the Father except through you. Lord, we understand that there's only one way to be made right with God, and it is through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believing, Jesus, that you are Lord, believing that you rose from the dead. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, God, we, we would pray Lord, you would help us to appreciate all that you've done. That as we remember the cost, as we remember uh, what was done on our behalf, God, that we would be moved with worship. Moved to worship, God, as a result of that. Lord, as we, as we partake together, Lord, we, we proclaim that we believe in you. We believe Lord, that salvation is through Christ alone. And Lord, if there is sin, sin in us, God, would you show it to us this morning? God, we want to reflect that we are your children today. We, God, we want to, to be pure before you, Lord, because you are pure. So Lord, help us to be examining our hearts even now before we partake together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.